Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Goldie Hyder, President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. But before we get into that, let's have a quick discussion with our Energy Security Analyst and Energy Security Forum Manager, Joe Kalman about the news, some of the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things with you, Joe? I'm doing well, Kelly. Life goes on. I was uh, surprised this weekend, uh, as I'm sure everybody in Calgary was, to wake up on Saturday morning and realize that it was uh, getting into winter. So unfortunately, we live in a part of the world that uh, just sort of hates us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I've always said, Joe, if the weather was good in Calgary, there'd be 4 million people here. What's going on in the news? Yeah, uh, let's start with something that's been brewing for a while, and I'm sure that our listeners have heard us talk about um, these things a few times before. So this is the question of how the European Union will manage the delicate balancing act of keeping member countries aligned as it charts European energy policy for the coming years. For some background, the European Union has spent the last 25 odd years in the process of consolidating the various power and gas markets of its member countries into a single liberalized power and gas market. So this single market strategy fosters deeper economic integration between EU member states and greater energy security by allowing for energy to more freely transit borders. Uh, Maintaining this sort of electricity market will be necessary for the deep electricity decarbonization of European economies, since it allows member states to rely on, for example, Spanish sun during the day and North Sea wind at night. Well, the only thing I could say for sure about that is that the sun will shine in Spain sometime during the day, usually. You know, with the current energy crisis in Europe, this integrated design of the single market has made uh, local energy policies contentious. You know, for example, Germany's recent move to subsidize natural gas and electricity was criticized as a selfish move, which could lead Germans to outbid poorer countries for scarce natural gas. Earlier this month, Ursula van der Leyen said that without a common European solution, we seriously risk fragmentation. So it is a paramount that we preserve a level level playing field for all. Yeah, really. So the European Commission has been cooking up an EU-wide plan on power and gas prices and have come up with the following proposal. On electricity, generators with low marginal costs like renewables and nuclear will bid on contracts for difference, essentially forcing renewables and nuclear to bid their own electricity prices down to the lowest supportable level. On natural gas, the Commission has proposed a gas to power price cap of 100 to 120 euros per megawatt hour. There is still a great deal of uncertainty on how the the price cap will be implemented and Russia has already said that it would cut off its remaining supply to Europe if it was hit with a price cap. And uh, further down the road, there are also concerns about how introducing these contracts for difference impacts on the sort of growth in low carbon energy that the European Union is proposing. So without price signals, growth in renewables is unlikely to be located where it is needed most, but instead it will gravitate toward jurisdictions with the highest subsidies. Uh, Restraining price signals will also likely reduce the incentive for badly needed intercontinental electricity transmission. And uh, this could damage long-term European energy security. Joe, wasn't there an announcement this morning by BASF, the largest petrochemical manufacturer in the world, that is a direct, directly correlated to this story? Is that not, would that not be true? 
Yeah, this is that's true. Uh, so this uh, gas price cap is specifically for gas use in electricity, I believe. And so the gas used for feedstocks and heating in industry, like BASF uses, it's not covered by this price cap. But of course, the whole mechanism of the system is, is still to be determined. But BASF did announce on the morning of October 26th that uh, they would be permanently reducing their operations in Europe, which is a very bad sign for uh, European industry. That, you know, I hate to discuss uh, zero-sum games, but it should enhance the potentiality of the industrial heartland in Alberta, right, with the uh, some of the, the pro- big projects there like uh, Dow Chemical, et cetera. Would that not be a positive? Cheaper feedstock, lots of cheap electricity. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to ramble a bit, but I think there's an opportunity there, and we can discuss that maybe at another time. Well, I mean, I'd wonder whether the supply hit, you know, like the reduction in supply from European production being shut down, uh, how that compares to the demand hit from sort of well, European recessions that are going to be caused by this and the uh, more global recession. So the, it's a question of both supply, but then also on the other end, demand. You know, where, where are we going to be in terms of petrochemicals demand in the coming decade if, for example, we see a major slowdown in both Europe and China? What else is going on, Joe? Yeah, next up, let's switch over to Canada, where a few events in the nuclear space are promising a major shakeup of the industry in Canada and globally. So on October 11th, uh, uranium miner Cameco and renewable energy asset manager Brookfield Renewable Partners announced that they would jointly purchase nuclear power products and services company Westinghouse. Uh, It should be noted, though, that Westinghouse was previously owned by Brookfield Business Partners, a sister company of Brookfield Renewable Partners, uh, which are both controlled by parent company Brookfield Asset Management. Now, this is still, you know, one of the largest Canadian companies in the world. Uh, Westinghouse declared a bankruptcy in 2017 due to the collapse of the nuclear industry in the 2010s and was acquired by Brookfield in 2018. The bigger story is the involvement of Cameco, the world's largest non-state-owned uranium producer. Uh, Now, over the last decade and a half, Cameco has expanded to become involved in downstream components of the nuclear fuel supply chain. But as far as I know, this is the first example of Cameco getting involved in the nuclear power industry proper. Uh, This could make Cameco a hugely influential player in the global nuclear industry and perhaps a very important Canadian corporate champion. Well, and in the and it, their operations are in northern Saskatchewan. And it's really this is really a. I think it could be in the next in the coming decade something very very positive for Canada. In other uh, nuclear news, the Canadian Infrastructure Bank announced on Tuesday that it will give a low interest loan of 970 million to Ontario Power Generation or OPG to build a 300 megawatt GE Hitachi small modular reactor. This SMR is anticipated to begin supplying power to the province of Ontario in 2028 though the design hasn't yet been licensed by the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. And that's another discussion that we're, you know, just to, to give people a taste, we're going to be talking nuclear a lot in the next few months with our associates at uh, Brilliant Energy Institute and Jackie Hornwig. Um, so stay tuned. If all goes well, the SMR could help Ontario with longer term electricity demand challenges. Ontario's independent electric system operator, or ISO, has projected robust increases in electricity demand over the coming years from the electrification of transport and heavy industry. Longer term, the establishment of a domestic SMR supply chain could really establish Canada as an industrial hub for this technology. 
please bear in mind that Canada's been producing nuclear reactors of some sort for 70 years. But this depends on several factors, including the establishment of economies of scale in SMR manufacturing and outcompeting other industrial nations like the UK and the United States on getting there first. Lots of work to be done. Thanks, Joe. Very interesting. Thanks. Not a problem, Kelly. Great. Let's switch over to our discussion with Goldie. People are going to like it. For today's interview, recorded October 21st, 2022, we discuss energy security in the context of Canada's business climate from a capital, labour and industrial development perspective. Very pleased to have joined me today from Ottawa, Ontario is Goldie Hyder. Goldie is the President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. Prior to joining the Council, Goldie was President and CEO of Hill & Knowlton Strategies Canada and before that, the Director of Policy and Chief of Staff to former Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Joe Clark. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Goldie. Great to be with you, Kelly. Um, let's start. You know, I, I, we've known each other some time, and I and I know that you are a candid and frank man. And uh, give us an unvarnished opinion of the business climate for energy in Canada today, in your opinion. Well, look, let me preface everything by saying that you probably won't find a prouder Canadian than I am. I mean, I love this country. In fact, much of what I do and where I get my energy from is to make sure that we um, pay it forward and that we leave behind a better society for our kids and grandkids. But unfortunately, Kelly, we're not doing that. And that's just the harsh reality. Uh, every generation before us made life better for the, for the generation that followed. And we have, you know, again, the climate is a serious issue. Fiscally, there's a lot of serious issues in the world. There's war going on. There's crumbling infrastructure. You know, I don't want to be a downer about these things, but the reality is if we don't do things, if you don't lead the way, um, the world's going to pass us by. And so I look at this moment and I say a few things. Number one, the climate is not great for Canada, not because I'm happy to say that. I'm very frustrated that I have to say that. And the reason is that we have lost our way of doing what got this country to be as strong as it has been in its 150 plus years of history. And I look back and I say, it's because we were builders, Kelly. We were a country that built things. I mean, I don't think today we could build the national highway that unites this country, the national railway that unites this country, the ports that allow us to get our products uh, out to market, given with the environment in which we find ourselves. So that's a source of great frustration for me because it's like, We've uh, invested so much to get us where we are, but we can't go to the next level if we don't continue with how we got here. And that is largely about the capacity to build things. So on the one hand, um, you know, uh, government officials, invest, uh, invest, uh, organize, investment organization, others will say, look, there's a lot of FDI coming into the country. You know what, Kelly? There's a lot of FDI coming into the country. There's no question about it. But a lot of it is going to the softer stuff. It's in technology and they're looking, you know, obviously important things like, you know, um, AI and quantum and cyber and all of those kinds of things, the corridors in, uh, in, in Waterloo and Edmonton and McGill. I get that. That's important. Uh, however, we are a country that trades goods, commodities, and you need access to markets and you need trade enabling infrastructure to get there. I think people would struggle to name me three things we've built in the last 25 years. Uh, sure, there are some things coming along. We'll finally have uh, Kitimat done here in, uh, in about 2025. You know, TMX had to be nationalized at right. tremendous cost to taxpayers to have it done. So are we in a place now where the only people who can who can really build things are business, providing that the government is the person who's buying? Is that the model that we want? Why can't we create an environment in which capital will form because capital sees an opportunity to do good, and yes, to generate a return for their shareholders. That's how this country was built. 
we, we didn't build it on the backs of socialism. We built it on the backs of, uh, of private sector investment and in an environment where government and business worked in partnership. So I think it's possible, but it's not there today. And that's what we're, we're, we're really struggling with. And I, and I, I think that as we get into this conversation, I, I, I do think there's a moment here where just maybe we can fix that and, and change the course that we're on. Before we go into that, and I, you know, I, I totally agree with the, the, your premise, and I think that there's a big misunderstanding, and I hate to be trite, but do people think energy and infrastructure is going to come on an app? Like, are you just going to be able to download it or, or order it off Amazon? But I, I'm digressing. Um, tell us, in your opinion, how this, as you say, there's lots of FDI, foreign direct investment coming into Canada, but how has that changed over the past couple of centuries, say since the new millennium, and what's made it attractive or unattractive in certain regards, especially about energy? Well, look, I think part of the problem here is that we're in an era of short-termism. And so people look at these things kind of like in the moment and say, I need you to do X, Y, or Z, but infrastructure projects have a life cycle of 20, 30, 40 years for their, not only their, their initial usage, because they often get renewed and extended, but for the amortization of the costs that go into this infrastructure, it's in the tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars. And so you need to have a runway that allows you to recover the cost of investing in that infrastructure, right? So, you know, people say uh, there's a lot of profits being made in the oil and gas sector today, the energy sector today, because of the where the barrel is. And therefore, you know, we need to either tax them or we need to have them reinvest everything right away in the entire green transition. Um, two years ago, the price was negative. Yeah, it was a negative barrel just two years. I don't know what that means. I don't know if they give me money when I fill up the car. It was negative. And yes, today it's in a, it's a much better, better place, but we don't know where it will be in two years or five years or 10 years. And so these decisions are not made at the board level on today. They're made on some predictions and some expectations of what a return would look like over a longer period of time. So that's the first thing I would just say that we're in an era where populism is just, well, it's just taxable. I mean, look, right. we, issued a, we issued a bank tax. Well, well, the customer pays for that. What, what good did that do? And it frightened every other industry that, oh my God, maybe I'm next. Maybe this isn't the place to invest. So we have to be cautious about, about that short-termism and that populism. That's point one. Point two is, and this is um, a really an, an extension of both the last governments that we've had. Uh, they had choices to make and they chose to, I think, uh, make the mistake of messing with what got us here. What got us here over 150 years was an arm's length regulatory process, whether it was the National Energy Board, whether it was the Foreign Direct, uh, the, the Investment Review Division or others, we, we as investors could say, here's the process, here's the mechanism, here's who you deal with in the regulatory body. This is the means by which your project will be approved or denied or some conditions would be imposed. In fact, there were always conditions imposed, which businesses could accept. And very early on, if something wasn't gonna be a goal, you know, somebody said, I want to build a, you know, pipeline through Lake Ontario. Well, you know what? That's not going to happen. Okay. Right. Then I don't have to spend any money on lawyers or regulators. And I just go away. Then somewhere along the road here, over really the, the curse of social media and, and the populism agenda here has gotten us to a place where we've politicized investment. We've politicized that and we've politicized infrastructure. And that means that even if you go through a regulatory process, you check off all the boxes, you agree to what the conditions are somewhere into the future. A government that you don't know who will be in power when the time comes for your project to be reviewed by a cabinet that may or may not know very much about infrastructure or or or, or, um, or the environment or in the environment or the energy sector um, is going to make a decision to say, you know what, 
politically, this is not a good time for this project to go ahead. Therefore, we either, you know, give you a, a some kind of a, a pause, or we ask you to go back and apply again, like we did to Energy East, which was absurd. Um, these kinds of things just create a chill. And what it says to investors is, you're unreliable. And what does capital like? What is a capital like most? Predictable sort of a, a political environment, stable, stable political environment, a predictable regulatory environment that says these are the rules. This is how we this is how we you know adjudicate these rules. Um, and a sense of social cohesion that is a country that uh, you know respects rule of law, that immigrants are allowed in, we respect minorities, et cetera, et cetera, right? And Canada has all of those things if we want it to be, but we've gotten away from that because we've become politicized in the in the approval process here. And so when I speak with the government who I think has uh, feels that they've addressed problems that existed before, because in fairness, it wasn't like there was a lot of stuff being built under the last government either. Nothing got, <laughs> has been built in this country, as I said, for some time now, except for those a few projects in the West Coast that are going. Um, we've turned away Saguenay. We turned away uh, the Northern Gateway now. We've, we've turned away Energy East. We don't know what's going to happen in some of the, coast, uh, the East Coast projects that are there. So if we politicize our regulatory environment, and you've brought in a new source of, of regulation, such as Bill C-69 and others, and very few applications have come forward in that process, I think the verdict is, is, being, is, is available to us, which is, we don't believe this process offers this, the things I've just described, stability, predictability, and confidence that you will not interfere in what should really be a regulatory process. Government should set the framework, set the rules, and then get out of the way. Let the regulators do their job. Let businesses be held to account uh, for the agreements that are reached with those regulators in terms of what those conditions are, the things that you need to do for you know with indigenous communities, the things that you need to do for the, for the environment and, and so forth. So that model worked and we've gotten away for it. So those two things to, that I've just mentioned to me, I think if they stay the way they are, Kelly, we're not going to see a lot more infrastructure development in the country. That means we're going to lose out. You mentioned some of these projects like uh, the uh, Saguenay and Northern Gateway, Energy East. There was the Tech Frontier Oil Sands Mine. And we're kind of dependent on old legacy infrastructure. And we haven't even talked about major transmission of electricity, except yeah. stuff like that. Like, like the gargantuan changes needed to the electrical grid to distribute the power needed for the just transition. I hate using that term, but it's yeah. out there. Yeah. And you've, you've mentioned a lot of things. What could you add about besides the politicization of, of the process? Well, I think um, that's the central one, to be very honest. Yeah, that's with you. it. Well, it's it may not be the only thing, because, of course, we've got to deal with social license issues. We've got to deal with legal issues. And but, you know, businesses are sophisticated. Uh, they can read the room. They know what's going on. They see what needs to be done. In the case of Energy East, I can tell you, having worked on that project and same with uh, with Gateway, the greatest support for those uh, pipelines was on the route of the pipeline. The objections came from, you know, Rosedale or, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in Westmount or in, uh, in, in, you know, some places out in Vancouver. But it wasn't the people who were affected by the pipeline because they were spoken with. They were engaged. Town halls were held. You know, mayors and others in the city understood the benefits of the royalties that would come. They appreciated the effort that was put into building relationships with Indigenous communities. They understood the importance that any company... I mean, it is if there's any one thing that is in the self-interest of any company, it is the safe operations of their of their business. So why would they not go out of their way to make sure that they're that they can do everything that they can to prevent any kind of risk to the communities in terms of leaks and so forth? So you do all of that, 
And then you get a government that comes in and says, you know what, it's like, we're going to have a new set of rules. You're going to have to retroactively go back and reapply. And these things are just not something that are noticed in Canada, Kelly. They're noticed abroad. Like I travel a lot, as you know. Yes. And, and, and the message from many others that I'm receiving now is, yes, there are areas where you can definitely invest in Canada. And believe me, I'm happy to see that happen. And I want more of that to happen. But we don't see a country that's committed to building the trade enabling infrastructure. Just take, for example, what I think is the one of the stories of the year, and it's uh, it's October, so I guess it, it could be in the running. Um, the visit of the German Chancellor. Let me take a minute or two on that, if I can, because I think it's critical that your viewers or listeners, excuse me, understand this. Right? We had a G7 country in Germany with a Chancellor and the Vice Chancellor, who's a member of the Green Party, uh, come to Canada. We interacted and collaborated with our counterparts um, uh, on the German side, and we had a wonderful gathering at the Global Mail Building in Toronto. And we had an agenda full of wanting to discuss the energy sector in terms of their needs for LNG, but also the transition uh, that is underway in terms of hydrogen and other things, whether they're interested or not, small modular nuclear reactors, um, you know, uh, carbon capture utilization and sequestration. All of these are things that largely Canadian businesses are investing in. Canadians are businesses are ready to take the lead on. They see the investment that's necessary to do that. They understand the opportunity that's available to be able to do that. And they're committed to it because it's the right thing to do. So there, that was the moment. And what did we do to the Germans? We basically told them, you're not allowed to ask for LNG or talk about LNG. Um, somehow people who don't uh, really haven't run businesses said there's no business case for it. And so that was a disturbing development. And um, I think we saw what happened. The Germans went to Australia about 16 years worth of LNG supply from Australia. Then they went to the UAE, added to the supply of, of LNG from the UAE. And last week, which is uh, whatever the week is, 14th week or whatever of October, they went to the United States and bought more LNG from them. Canada's contribution to, to Germany for LNG, zero. And yet look at how much LNG we have. Look at the capacity that we have. Kitimat is coming online in 2025. Admittedly, it's gonna go to Asia. Uh, we can double the size of that. So whether we take it east to get it to Europe or west to get more into the market, flood the market exactly. with yep. Canadian LNG, let Asia you know, not have to purchase from the Middle East so that the Europeans can get it from the Middle East. There's a lot of that kind of you know, realignment that's taking place here. We talk about supply chains and French shoring and all that applies to oil and gas as well. Now, the good thing that came out of that visit is when they were asked the Germans, hey, would you have bought the Canadian LNG if you could? They said, well, of, of course, that's what we came for. And I think over time, in a matter of days, the prime minister, to his credit, you know, read the room and realized that, you know, what he needed to do was to fix this. And he's fixed it by saying, we need to rec recognize that it's in our national interest to expedite some projects to be able to get energy to our allies so that they can live their values. Because when we can't get it to them, what it really means is those countries are, are held hostage by autocratic oil and gas. So you can't be for the climate for human rights, you know, for trade. And when the time comes to do it, you, 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 you don't. So good job. We've now said we're going to expedite some projects. So our message to the government is fantastic. Let's sit down and figure out with a sense of urgency, what are those priority projects? Which ones are you looking to put in a bucket that says these may not be subject to the specific criteria of Bill C-69 or other things, because we see a national interest and a global interest clause here that allows us to get very um, specific as to what kind of projects are going to be approved and not approved. Kelly, you know that money follows message. There is a lot of money sitting on the sidelines today around the world. It's estimated just in Canada alone, $200 billion worth of capital is sitting there. 
partly because it doesn't have a sense of confidence and, and, and sense that in, in the sense of, of certainty and predictability. And of course, because the world's a mess. And so what are they doing? They're, they're, they're waiting for until they figure out what to do and they're holding that, that capital. But could it be unlocked? Of course it can be unlocked. CEOs don't run companies to do share buybacks and issue dividends. They run companies to grow them, to build them, to meet customer demand, you know, to leave behind something that's even better than they found it. If, if we can give them the opportunity to do that, I think Canada can seize this moment, uh, lead the world in addressing the energy crisis, lead the world in addressing the environmental situation, lead the world in providing critical minerals, lead the world in responding to the food crisis out there, and demonstrate that you can do both. It's not or, it's and. We can take our lead from the energy sector, use those revenues to finance the transition as Canadian companies are prepared to do. We can do this. I mean, take a look at carbon capture. It is really a cost to most companies. You don't take carbon and send it to gas stations for Canadians to come by and purchase it. It's no. largely a cost. Maybe there's some incidental use around fibers and so forth, but you're basically capturing it. You're building a pipe to move it, and then you're storing it into the ground. That's, just, that's, a, that's a CSR, ESG, do the right thing approach by business. We want government involvement, and we've got some uh, incentives to do that. So again, thank you for the federal government for doing that. The provinces can do the same and reduce some of those costs. It is estimated that this transition could cost us the entire global GDP. That's in the 100 trillion plus number. We're, if Canada can't contribute to that, then we're just going to make it harder for, for, for addressing the emissions reductions that I think we're all committed to doing. You know, you, you mentioned uh, security issues around global energy when you talked about Germany and and uh, most of our listeners will know and I, I talked to you about the op-ed I wrote about that particular uh, thing that happened in Newfoundland slash LNG and uh, and hydrogen and I, it just seems like the that you know at points in time the leadership in the federal government loses the plot because it, it felt like to me that the Germans did not know that we cannot produce LNG. In the press release from the chancellor, that was it was almost between the lines that, well, really, you can't? You can't ship us gas? Anyways, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. I want to talk about energy security a little bit, Goldie, before we go. Um, you know, energy security isn't important until it is, and it is really important now. And it, if, everything you do uses energy, whatever kind of business you run or, or your own life. It's either electricity, heat, fuels, feedstocks. Every business has been affected by rising natural gas and oil prices, in part due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, the re and sanctions, but there's a lot more to it than that. I could go into detail about the lack of capital investment in the energy sector, but what, what, how are your uh, businesses and your members reacting to higher energy costs? And have, are they worried about competitiveness because of uh, tighter, uh, well, we'll get to labor in a minute, but tighter margins due to the cost of energy? Is that a is that an issue going Let's, forward? Uh, look, it's the right question to be asking, Kelly, because again, um, you know, if you don't learn from from experience from others, you're doomed to repeat it. So let's not, we don't have to go very far back in history here. The most recent example is what happened in Europe itself. Europe made a decision to say, I think we're ready to go to renewables now. And they turned off their nuclear plants and turned off their coal plants and they turned on their renewables and the reliance on natural gas became so high that gas prices went up like four or 500%. And the customer said, well, well, hang on here. I can't afford that. I can't afford that. Can we get can we get that other stuff turned back on? Now, I'm a big believer in nuclear. I don't know how anybody can believe that you can address the emissions issue without utilizing the cleanest form of energy that there is, nuclear. So that's got to be a big part of the solution. I think the SMRs is a great Canadian opportunity going back to somewhat like the can-do was, but a chance for can Canadian companies to lead the way on, on the, the use of these small modular nuclear reactors as they become available um, uh, to do so. So the lesson from Europe is 
if you go too fast, if you go too soon, and you don't bring the public with you, and the public can't afford it, it like a slingshot, you get strung back to the past. In fact, there was a, a line from the somebody who works at Saudi Ramco at one of the meetings that took place a few weeks ago, and he said, uh, there's a transition underway, all right? A transition back to coal. Cool. Cool. Yeah. And uh, you, you kind of go, wow, um, that's the last place we want to go. And this is where I think Canadian companies feel that they can really contribute. I mean, good news, and just the other day, we had the decision um, on, on the Cedar um, uh, pipeline out in British Columbia, where they said, look, this may well raise emissions in Canada, but it will reduce them globally. And so if you're going to have an adult conversation about this, you need to see that trade-off. Is that the right thing to do? If you're going to ultimately have the net effect of reducing emissions, which don't do, last time I checked, customs and immigration when they come over your country, what does it matter if the net outcome, and this is the other thing I think everybody needs to remember, Kelly. Uh, I, I give credit to Nancy Southern at ATCO who, who reminded me of this. She said, Goldie, the term is net zero. And that's zero. There's a huge difference between committing to zero and committing to net zero. So will there be emissions today, tomorrow, and for years to come? Yes. Can they be offset by innovation and, and, and the use of renewables and so forth? Yes. But as you pointed out earlier, we don't even have a national grid. If, we, if everybody suddenly twitched to, uh, to plug into electrical vehicle cars and needed plugins to charge their car, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. We would have cars stranded in the roads because people couldn't find a place to charge because we don't have the power. So we've got to build that kind of infrastructure. It's not started yet, Kelly. It hasn't started yet. And the other thing I would say is we need to um, work together on this as a country. We can't be coming at this from provincial interests. We need to have a national interest here. As I said, emissions don't respect borders any more than COVID did. So let's work together on that. That's point one. Point two is it's a competitive landscape, right? Um, it's a very competitive landscape. When you look at what's taking place in the United States of America, and you say whatever you like about America, my predecessor, predecessor John Manley always said, uh, he said to me, he said, you know, you never short America, Goldie. When America wants to do something, it goes bigger, it goes home. And guess what they're doing right now with the so-called, and somebody should be fired over this, but the IRA, which is the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, but, uh, really, yeah. really a climate bill, right? And what it yes, really it is, is. Yeah. it's an industrial <clears throat> policy, actually. The thing that we're asking for our own government to come up with, what's our industrial policy? America has one. They're going deep on it. And they're looking at our critical minerals like it's theirs. <laughs> we yeah. need to remind them, those are ours. I don't want to see a replay in the critical minerals of Ring of Fire, for example, of what happened to the oil sands, right? Effectively, we only shipped in one direction. We were landlocked by our own doing for, for the most part and mischief on the parts of many others, I think, who kept the land, who, who said Canadians are so naive, they'll, they'll only sell it to one, act, one person at 30 cents on the dollar. And will they do that to our critical minerals? How do we leverage the resources that we have so that it helps grow our economy? When you look at what just Christian Fairland is going to be, um, you know, um, um, giving her a fall economic statement. And this is where we're looking for a lot of these specifics around what projects you're going to expedite. What are the terms and conditions? Are they going to be expedited, expedited and others? You know, she's been talking a lot about the competitiveness issues here now, to her credit. And I think she is recognizing that her own economic situation in terms of the deficit being cut in half in excess of what that was forecast is largely on the backs of the energy sector. Right. And so don't bite the hand that feeds you, that allows you to build a stronger economy, that allows those same profits to go into the investment to help with the transition, but it's and. It's and people, it's and, it's not or. And so the more we can make that message, the key it is, the US, the US issue is important, Kelly, because it's about competitiveness. If we're not careful, America will get all the good stuff and we'll be left with the spoils when we can be serious players and good partners 
with our critical minerals, building integrity of our supply chains, getting our resources to market, helping America and our own interests abroad, because more of Canada actually is a good thing. I'm, I'm biased in saying that, but I do believe it's a good thing. If I could stay on this point for a second, because I'm going to go back to something you said about industrial strategy. And I'm just throwing this out here because I know you'll have an opinion. Is it time for something like the McDonald Commission? Like led by the problem that I see with like, first I'll just quantify that or qualify that statement. I don't see a lot of business heads around the government where it would have to be quarterbacked by something like your the the critical mass that the business council has. But is it time for something like that? A, like a 30 year strategy for, for the country industrially? Look, I don't think time's our friend. Um, I don't think it's time for royal commissions or so forth. I think you certainly you can launch one if you like just to be able to put together a strategy. The truth is, there's a lot of things that are happening that are episodically in piecemeal. They may well be able to be knitted together into a critical mineral sure. strategy. Uh, sorry, into an industrial strategy, right? I mean, Mr. Champagne has just been doing a fantastic job around the world, bringing in capital, you know, and into our minerals industry, into our battery industry, um, uh, to make sure that we're apart now. Because one thing, this moment is kind of like when an airline chooses its hub, right? When Delta chose, you know, Utah as the hub. They're not moving now. That's where they're right. going to be, right? And this is what's going to happen with, when you make batteries. This is what's going to happen when you're going to be a part of any kind of a supply chain issue, uh, whether it's health or other issues. Once you get it, it'll probably stay with you. So I don't think we have the luxury of thinking 20, 30 years in terms of, you know, and, and commissions and all of that. Fine, launch it if you like. But I think right now we're seeing a good relationship. Take, for example, the work of the Pathways Group, a committed right. group of, 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 of industry leaders in the energy sector who are saying, we understand the need to get our emissions down to the targets that governments have set by 2030 and for 2050. Many of our members have made their own commitments on how they're going to do net zero by 2050. This is not just the right thing to do. Frankly, it's, it's, it's just good business today, isn't it? It's, any, it's no more different than gender equality or diversity. It's just good. It's the right thing to do, but it's also good business for you to do that. So there should be no suspicion as to do these guys mean it. Do they, are they serious about it? Of course they are. You're not going to put Hundred, you know, tens of billions of dollars into carbon capture, as I said, for which there's no market, if it isn't the right thing to do and you feel that it'll lead to good good for your business and good for the people that you serve. So it's, it's a complex thing. Let's take the success stories of the day, work together, identify what the problems are like we've tried to do with the political, uh, the politicization of regulations in Canada. That has led to a chill. It will not change. So if somebody tells me, hey, how do we know if the bill works because there are no applications, I would say, let that sit for five minutes and you'll have your answer. There are no applications because the judgment has already been rendered that it's not going to work. There's one more thing I want to talk about because it, I, I, and maybe you could give us a couple of statistics about how many people actually work for the corporations that you mm -hmm. and members of the business council, but la the, the future of labor and the giant shift change required after as people like me who are baby boomers retire, um, I, there's critical shortages of skilled laborers across, and it isn't just the energy sector. This is across the gamut. Um, what's the feeling around the business council about how that how we solve that issue is it, it isn't just going to get solved by AI and big data blockchain. And what can the government help businesses do to, to, to uh, get, keep this moving forward and be competitive globally on the labor front? Well, look, this is a podcast in and of itself. This is arguably the most important issue for the country um, um, in terms of immediate impact for, for people's lives. 
you know, when you wait for a bag for an hour at an airport or when the restaurant you want to go to at lunch is closed or when your retail store is not open on a Friday night because they can't have somebody man the store, uh, you know, or you're waiting a little extra longer for an Uber or whatever the case might be, all roads point to a labor uh, labor shortage and a labor, a labor crisis to some extent. We have today about 2.7 million people in our immigration backlog, largely generated uh, over the COVID period where we accepted applications but didn't process them. <laughs> so of course there's going to be a backlog. We weren't able to keep up uh, with, the, with the ongoing demand. Now, I think next week, uh, which is the week of whatever, the 24th, um, we're going to see more targets set by the government in terms of, uh, of another area where I think they're getting the big thing right, which is we need more immigrants. So good for them. They're moving in the right direction. We're adding more. Uh, we'd like to see more and more of them be economic migrants, economic immigrants, because they're the ones who are going to come in and add the value. That doesn't mean we don't do refugees or family class or others. It's just which syllable you put the emphasis on, uh, recognizing that that immigration has always been intertwined. I mean, you and I are old enough to know. It used to be called the Minister of Employment and Immigration. Right. <laughs> right. The two things were, were, were they went hand in hand. So let's make sure we remember immigration is an economic policy, and that we need uh, we need to grow that. I don't need to go with your audience who's sophisticated, but we know that our birth rate is down. We know that we're aging. We know that there's a withdrawal from the workforce. We know that there's competition for talent around the world. So let's make sure, A, we put all hands on deck to fix the backlog. I said to the prime minister um, uh, back in the summer when we were in Los Angeles together that um, this is akin to COVID. You showed in COVID the government can respond to a crisis. Could you please take that same attitude, that same approach, move uh, public servants into the, the immigration department and start processing an application that's basically about what's your name, what's your date of birth, what school did you go to, uh, you know, uh, or what, where, where have you worked, uh, are you healthy, are you a crook? <laughs> that's the application. So let's just get that on. The second thing is let's change the approach of everybody is guilty of something before they come here. We assume our system is based on a model that basically says everyone is sick or a crook. And it turns out 99% of the people who come in the country are not sick or crooks. So we built the model to catch 1% and hold back the 99. And now those delays are now creating a competitiveness problem. Take, for example, foreign students. Uh, we have hundreds of students that didn't make it here this year. And the odds are they're gone. Somewhere in there is a unicorn. Somewhere in there could be a Nobel Prize winner. Somewhere yeah. in there could be a future prime minister of the country. We don't know. They're gone now. Why? Here it's taking three, four months to get that visa. Australia is giving it to you in five days. Five days. Wow. Right? And we're now, we're now seeing... An interest in the United Kingdom because that's the, that's the circus that they've just been through has collapsed the pound. And as a result, people are sitting in Asia, places like India, and say, wow, I can go only nine hours from home. I can get a British education. The pound has collapsed. I can pay all what I would have paid to come here. I'll just go there instead. So we'll always get people, Kelly. We'll always get money. The question is, are you getting the best? Are you getting the highest quality of immigrants and the highest quality of capital that you need? We'll never know. And so we've got to be careful about that. The other thing is we have a system that's antiquated. Not only is it still, believe it or not, some countries still have fax machines in our embassies. Uh, we've got to modernize. This is a digital process now. You know, we've got to be digitized. We've got to be able to take those applications. We've got to be able to move quickly. We've also got to change our attitudes. Why does government have to do everything? Is it possible that our universities could pick up a process after the government has said, I've done the biometrics. The security is clear here. You can take it from here. You validate their vaccinations, you get them housing, you get them their you know, tuition set up, you get them into school, you make sure that, you know, that, that you're following them um, uh, in terms of monitoring you know, how they're doing and all of that. Same thing for business. Why is it that governments have to do everything? Why not just say to businesses, hey, you guys need you know, 1 million workers, 
Uh, we're going to help you figure that out. We're just going to clear the security. We're going to clear maybe even the health. And here you go. You guys process. You guys take. I'll tell you right now, Kelly, our members would turn around and say, I'll give you guaranteed jobs for several years. Here you go right now in writing. No matter what recession is coming or not coming, the labor shortage is so acute and so severe. And I think you, you know, your listeners, again, are too smart for this, but, but make sure they use this language with others is every vacant job is a person not paying taxes for your health care, your education, your road, the society that we've built here, right? We have too many of those right now. So that's a critical component of it. And we're trying to work with government as a partner here. This is not a, an exercise in just you know, criticizing and running away. We're saying, let's work together to solve these problems because Canadians are expecting it of us. And uh, whether it's the environment, whether it's the labor shortage issue, whether it's the opportunity uh, with the energy sector, whether it's on infrastructure, good things happen as we saw in COVID when government and business and labor and others can work together to solve problems it's good for the country, it's good for our citizens, and most importantly, Kelly, at a time in which populism is on the rise, it restores some confidence and hope in our institutions that people can rely on. You know, you've set yourself up for, for uh, you know, you, you gave me the opportunity to ask you to come back on, and I think it would be a great idea to talk about, more, more specifically for our purposes, the energy jobs in the future, and and uh, I'm going to commit you to do that. So, Goldie, this has <laughs> been a good. wonderful conversation. I, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's always refreshing to hear it. You're such a positive guy, and, and you're a great credit to this nation, and I want to thank you for that. Before we go, though, we always ask in the in the uh, auspices of Colin Robertson and the mentor for our podcasts, if you have time, is there anything you read besides somebody's annual report? <laughs> well, look, first of all, thank you for the kind words, Kelly. And uh, look, my friend, people like you and I and so many others, we're all in it for the same reason, right? We want to leave this place behind better than we found it for our kids and our grandkids. And I'm an optimist. Um, I think everybody I work with will tell you the glass is half full. Um, and we can do something about it. And that's my message to everybody. Let's work together to do it. So the answer to your question on books. So first, this is what you call a shameless plug. Um, I'm actually a co-editor uh, of a book on the Indo-Pacific. Oh, cool. And I think you're going to be hearing a lot about the Indo-Pacific from Minister Jolie uh, in the matter of coming weeks here on what our strategy is going to be. So this is a book that has uh, a number of chapters that uh, I think it's about 13 or so from people, many people would know, um, you know, in terms of former ambassadors and leaders about how do you take advantage of the opportunities in the Indo-Pacific? And I had a chance to uh, co-edit that with my friend Ben Hamson from uh, from Carleton and Tina Park. Who's one of our fellows, I believe. Yes. And then um, just because I wanted to plug a second one, because one of the things about, I think, our challenges here is our culture in Canada has just been too much dependent on ripping down success. We need to celebrate success. We need to encourage success. We need to remember that these are people who, you know, are, are working hard uh, to to build the country, to be to to help others rise up as well. And I thought that this book here, uh, called "Unprecedented: Canada's Top CEOs uh, on Leadership During COVID-19," which was done by Steve Mayer and Andrew Willis of the Globe and Mail, does a really good job. Again, short chapters; you don't have to read everything if you're not interested. But just a sense of what did business do? Because there's so much emphasis on what government did with SUS and CERB and Leaf and all these programs, all critically important. But I think when you sit back and look at it, the stories of Canadian business, Canadians will appreciate. At the end of the day, that broadband was invested by Canadian corporations. That mortgage relief was given to you by Canadian banks, the same ones who got a thank you from government by being taxed uh, afterward. Yeah. You know, um, uh, the, many of the things like keeping your grocery aisles full, you know, early on with everything but toilet paper turned out, but to do that, the truckers that went across the border who later got you know, subject to standards of vaccinations that nobody had experienced. But those are the same people who are unvaccinated bringing you groceries during that first year of COVID. These are the stories that people need to appreciate to say, wow, Canada's business community actually 
was a solutions provider during the pandemic and continues to be one, the PPEs, we couldn't make them. So companies that were making aerospace equipment or manufacturing cars, they converted to making you know, PPEs. So I just wish Canadians would take a look at what it is that was done. Judge us on, on the actions, not on you know, old, old adages and old assumptions and presumptions that I think don't do us any, that just don't serve our national interest to think like that. What a great way to end the conversation. Goldie, thanks so much for coming on our podcast. I can't thank you enough. Great to be here. Sounds like I'll be back. I look forward to it. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.